and welcome to the Disability Education and Society podcast. This is a podcast for collective learning and unlearning in the struggle for intersectional liberation. We focus on educational realms expanding to other societal areas. We share our stories as academics as well as those of our featured guests, including disability activists involved with multifaceted dimensions of systems equity, self-determination efforts, anti-ableist, and anti-racist liberation. Join us as co-conspirators. Today's episode features Renita Evans. Renita is a doctoral student in urban education at Indiana University in Indianapolis. She is a mother, wife, sister, aunt, and activist for practicing human freedom. Renita is a mother to multiple children claiming disability as a part of their identity, and her research interest seeks to better connect schools and communities by examining educational and social justice issues by uniting the oral traditions of families to the broader collective voice. Renita's scholarship focuses on culturally informed advocacy and intervention strategies mothers use to enhance Black family life and priorities within African ancestry. Doctors Janice Hale, Joyce King, Clenora Hudson-Weems, and Margaret Beale Spencer inform Renita's approach to scholarship. Well, thank you, Renita, for taking the time out of your really busy day. I know you have lots going on. I understand you just completed your qualifying exam over the weekend. Is that correct? I did. I did. So I just um, took one of many first steps um, in reaching the candidacy role. Um, So I just finished my qualifying exam. Um, And for those who may not be as familiar, it's a four week, three to four week process and you get questions from people on your team and they can come from anywhere, but it's within your discipline and you get to uh, provide what I call great critical conversations about your research topic. Um, And so it allows you in a free space to kind of expand on your thoughts more about what you know and how you come to know different areas of research. And for me, it's about Black mothers. It's about education. It's about advocacy. It's about our, our unique position and worldview. So I I'm glad to have finished it, but it was definitely a stressful process. So, but nonetheless, um, I'm grateful for it. Oh, congratulations on that monumental part of your journey. And uh, that is so awesome. And we'll talk more about uh, some of the, the topics that you just mentioned in today's conversation. So uh, to begin, Renita, we would like you to start by sharing um, a personal story related to uh, your journey with disability. Yeah. Um, so for me, I enter the conversation of disability and the experience of disability um, from the idea of mothering um, as an act, a kind act um, of how do we engage with uh, human freedom and raise our children and critique school systems and processes around um, how to create uh, that sort of learning environment. Um, And so for me, um, as a mother, uh, a Black woman uh, of multiple children with disabilities, um, I have entered this conversation from a place that began 
to appeal to be too large to put my hands around it, beginning in frustration. Um, that started with the first, the initial diagnosis, and then from diagnosis, okay, now do we, how do we grapple and put our hands around what assistance and support looks like? And then how do I begin to work with, work alongside of, and support the educational needs of my children, but yet help them feel empowered and not um, completely limited by this label. Um, so a lot of my approaches to disability um, is not so much just about them owning the disability, but owning how unique they are and how oftentimes their uniqueness um, forces forces is kind of maybe not the right word, but it, it, it requires adjustment. And so everyone reaches that adjustment and conversation and reaction to it differently. And so what I try to provide to them is this is your uniqueness and how can we help you and how can you teach me? So it's not just about um, my children learning to adjust. It's also about how can I adjust for you, right? Because a lot of what I do in my work not with just being a mother, but their advocate has a lot to do with learning from them and learning what their support looks like and learning my role in being their biggest supporter. And oftentimes that requires me taking on different roles. Um, so being a mother is just one of those perspectives that I provide. The other perspective I provide is their advocate. Um, the other perspective that I provide is also an activism, right? So how do I go about creating change? Um, not just talking about it in the advocacy, but there's the activism, the actual part of being engaged in the systemic changes that are required in order to um, not have to have adjustments to the individual in a deficit way um, to where the individual feels singled out. So those are kind of the three ways um, that I have entered it untraditionally. Um, I have a background in STEM. So um, to take this shift for me um, in my thinking and in my doing has really required me to not just be flexible in my thinking, but to also look at multiple perspectives um, and how we look at empowerment and disability. And so for me, um, kind of leaning into some of those scientific ways of thinking and knowing and having conversations with my children um, that are sometimes nonverbal um, is what that background has enabled me um, to be able to do. And so I have both a traditional and non-traditional approach. Um, and I think that that flexibility in my thinking and in my doing, and probably in most parents, it's not just unique to me, um, is what we are doing every day. Um, and we sometimes have the space um, to call it out. And so I try to use what I have experienced and what I have recognized as patterns to make it so that someone else isn't starting from ground zero, right? So that's that activism part and engaging not just in conversation, but in act, and then making it so that the my forefathers um, who kind of created and foremothers who have created um, these traditions and acts of kindness that straddle through race, disability, and advocacy and activism, that we're not always starting from ground zero all the time. We just have different perspectives 
that kind of, um, I like to use uh, this idea, they kind of pounce off of each other, right? So if you think about light and you think about how it refracts when it touches an object, that's kind of how I like to look at our perspectives and disability studies, right? It's a perspective and depending on where you are sitting in that conversation depends where that light hits you and how it hits you and how you may see things differently. I'm, I'm thinking, Renita, of Black motherhood in a global perspective. As I, as I hear you speak, I imagine a Black Caribbean mother who lives in Great Britain, for instance, or uh, a Black Somalian woman who lives in Indiana, or maybe a Black Puerto Rican woman who lives in the island, a Black Dominican woman who lives in her own island, uh, or Black Colombian mothers uh, near the coast. Um, and, and, you know, some of them may not experience uh, the sort of things that mothers have to go through here in the, the United States, the uh, Individualized Education Program or any of these multi-year process, but they have to struggle with inclusion in their own countries and their own realities. When you're thinking of Black motherhood's uh, memories and, and all the asset-based things that, that they bring with them, what, what would be your advice in terms of empowerment for those, those women who are Black mothers in so many multifaceted contexts uh, around the world? I appreciate that. Um, and just the opportunity, one, that you have given me such a great question and you've given me space to incorporate the elements that are important that I see, but also speak to them in a way that it can be transmitted to others who may not want this journey, but there are certain elements out of it that they may be able to take from it. And so in response to your question, um, what I would offer is this experience in not just being a Black mother, but a Black mother of multiple children with disabilities is a journey that I embrace as if multiple parents, everyone comes with their own unique struggle. I think that I am grateful for the struggle um, because out of struggle comes great change. And so for me, um, the answer to your question is really about my identity and cultural ways of knowing and leaning on the, some of those traditions. Um, and so for me, I found that asset-based approaches to facilitating knowledge and looking at it conceptually has been one of the ways I've modified my approach. Um, an example to that would be um, I've mentioned before in writing and in conversation um, that I pull from multiple um, perspectives to kind of shape how and when I intervene. Um, and because of these multiple identities and cultures that I engage with sometimes more than others, that has allowed me to recognize the empowerment in my own culture, in my own tradition, of not just raising children, but seeing the importance of having a collective perspective. And so for mothers who are going through this journey and sort of navigating it, 
um, the starting point would I would always say is rec is understanding and recognizing um, what are the values that are important to you and your family and holding those. Um, those are important in one of the many contributive ways that I think black women as mothers can contribute to shaping their children and socializing, right? Because so often we hear about disabilities and we hear about mothering, um, but we don't talk about those elements that kind of undergird um, our approaches. Um, so socializing them, regardless of the environment, culture plays a big part in that for me. Um, I lean into the, the work of Hudson Wings, um, who coined African womanists, um, both as a methodology and um, as sort of this approach to thinking about your priorities as a mother um, in the ways in which tradition has kind of identified and continues to identify that Black women have a very unique perspective, as, all, as do we all. Um, but th this is just one lane um, that I believe makes it e easier to navigate where you don't feel like you're constantly being pushing, you're pushing against systems. Um, it allows you to look at knowing and coming into for your child as a way of advocating. That tends not to be racial, but it tends to lean more towards activism. So what does it look like? And I say that because um, what I see and what I hear so often, so I'm Beth Harry has come into mind when I think about Black women who are mothers and scholars, right, who are doing the work. I think about the interplay between the perspective of mother and how that naturally sort of leans into what you experience and how you shape knowledge. Um, and so even between her perspective and mine, they're very different. That doesn't mean that they're out of alignment. They're just very different. And I think that's very much what it is with mothering uh, children and even globally, right? So um, each culture and subculture has their own way of interacting with each other in a school environment, a home environment, um, community, um, child rearing, raising children, socializing. Um, there are these many tropes that we engage in and we just kind of flow in and out of them and we allow them to move through us and occur naturally. Some interactions are more intentional, meaning IEP meetings, you have to be a little bit more intentional. But the approach that I offer and that I tend to take um, is really one of voice. And children with disabilities have voice. And I think it's important to hear what it is that they have to say, verbal or nonverbal. Mothers are one of the ways to communicate that and advocate, right? To bring their voice forward um, to speak on their behalf, because if we don't, then who will? So one of the ways that I enter that conversation again is through really leaning into not just how do I know my child, but what is so natural in their being that only sometimes mothers and those close to and kin can sense. And how do you relay that? So for me, it is about how do I bring their voice to the table, but I use myself as a vessel. And I understand that compliance is kind of the universal construction of how we must kind of bind ourselves to certain parameters. But when you're a mother, it's kind of like living in both environments. You get to the privilege of being in both spaces 
and speaking kind of on both behalves, right? You get to um, invoke your position as a mother and you get to bring their voice through as your child and you get to navigate and advocate and push back against systems that aren't working. And so mothering for me is one of those universal conversations that takes up a cultural aspect that you have to appreciate you lose value when you don't. So if any advice for mothers navigating or know what of loved ones who are going to navigate, I would offer to lean into what values you hold close to you, ground those values and how does that move your child forward in a way that is best for them? And then how do you see yourself as a mother pushing them forward and walking alongside of them through this journey? Um, and those are kind of my big pillars of, of action that I tend to lean behind. And then I just use the environment of what comes up naturally in that space to kind of move the conversation in those ways. It's a natural conversation. It's not, it doesn't feel forced. And when it doesn't feel forced, I believe that it opens the conversation up for more change, at least with um, school professionals, because that's a different kind of beast within itself. But when you're talking about mothering communities, um, there's a lot of sharing um, that happens behind the scenes just among mothers and social spaces. Um, that doesn't necessarily make it into the academic space. Um, and it's a lot of that gets lost in the terminology and how it gets translated from human into academia. And to some degree, I believe that there's that evolution of conversation for a mother who doesn't know the conversation. You have to build up some trust in order for me to be vulnerable enough to share. Um, and so mothers build those channels of trust kind of behind the scenes that um, heart, I wouldn't say they don't make it to um, academia because they do in narratives, um, but even in our own positionalities, we continue to reshape those conversations to fit that environment, um, whether it's through theory or through um, narrative themes um, that we tend to pick up. Um, so they happen in different ways and they're modeled in different ways. So mothering is really just about being flexible, understanding, navigating, um, but also championing. So it's all of the things. It's not a one size fit all. It's you have to be it and or. It's and, it's or, it's if, and it's, it's kind of all those things that you need to kind of be uncomfortable in and, and be okay with that. Yeah, Paula can tell you that I live in metaphors. Um, I, I get stuck uh, in that metaphor of the vessel um, because mothering is is a generative vessel. It's You could say a vessel is an object, but it's an object that if it's filled with water, if it's, it's you know, it can, can water plants, it can do things. Um, it has this dynamicity. Compliance to me is is this dry space um, that is looking for uh, protective measures within the system to um, do more, you know, more of sort of risk management types of things. And in that process, compliance tends to forget both children and the generative um, aspects that mothering can provide. Uh, and ideally, you could say, well, teaching is also generative, 
but um, if it sticks to compliance, it loses the watering capacity that mothering has as a vessel, right? When you said, you know, this is a a vessel that's dynamic, that's giving voice to the children and giving voice to the mothering community and teaching teachers. And um, I mean, it has these connections that I think are really, really fascinating. Um, so thank you for that that metaphor. I think it's, it's a beautiful metaphor. Thank you. And it I, I completely agree. It's, you know, I think so often, um, just not with just being a mother, um, not just with being an advocate, not just with being a participant. I think so often teachers, educators, professionals, mothers, collective thinkers, um, we sometimes lose in those conversations our agency, right? And what we bring into those conversations and how useful we are to each other when we all engage um, in those reciprocal sort of ways of how do we add to add value to um, what already exists um, to move not just the conversation, it's, um, it's about action. How do we move the activity uh, forward um, with the child in the center of all of the conversations um, and the resources needed to navigate? And I, I, I truly believe that um, that is one of the more underdeveloped conversations um, is about that, you know, the element of agency that we all bring with us in some capacity or another. How do we continue to lean into that um, and move beyond traditional conversations on what does that actually look like to pick it up and to engage with it in its rawest form and become so focused on how do we take our collective knowledge and being to move the dial differently in the conversations differently in the structured IEP meetings that I would say most environments um, have either predetermined what's, ne what's needed before the parent enters the room or it's underdeveloped when the parent comes in the room. So it's either or. Um, so I definitely um, think that that's one of the areas that are underdeveloped and I, I truly um, hope to, um, in my research adventure, um, continue to um, be one of those many voices and adding to that conversation and whatever that may be. I think that there's so much that you share that is so important with the idea of mothering. And as somebody, as a parent of a disabled person myself, I, I have a lot of um, connections that are made and also a lot of regrets in many ways that, you know, I'm, I have mothering tendencies maybe, but not what you described. Uh, I, I feel like in my journey, I operated mostly solo. I did not have this community that you, you talk about that I, I feel like, well, that would have been nice to have this kind of community, to have these people to lean on, to ask for advice and things like that. And so in some ways, I, I feel like I wish <laughs> this podcast would have been out uh, when I was going through these rough terrains, if you will. I, I do want to kind of amplify something you shared earlier that also really resonated with me. Uh, you said, out of struggle comes great change. And, and that uh, resonated with me because I, I think that about that a lot because of 
the I, I would say a lot of the hardships that I've been through just personally as uh, a father uh, and and that how, how how that has changed me individually so this is very much uh, you know something that I think about a lot on an individual level and something I, I do want to ask you Renita uh, because one thing that for me I feel like I advocated a lot for disabled persons but I, I wanted to to ask you what how do you distinguish between this idea like as a parent you could advocate for disabled folks disabled children uh in activism uh, and so this is something that I I feel like uh, would help me with a little bit of clarification there yeah so for me um and the way I see it advocacy is something that we are always doing right it's it's an idea, it's development of thinking, promotion of success, the collective coming around in order to alleviate whatever barriers or stressors are preventing that human, that individual from being the best selves. Activism is the actual activity that you do to remove or to limit those barriers from keeping that idea, that barrier, that child from being the best self. So it's one is kind of um, dependent on the other, but they can operate independently. Um, you can do both at the same time, which I think oftentimes mothers are doing that. Um, we are constantly advocating, right? So it remove the conversation of school we are constantly advocating for their development in more ways than one one of the examples i can give um, is when a child is learning to walk who maybe at some point was told that they wouldn't walk right as a parent mothering which can happen it's not gender specific can come alongside that individual to say in more ways than one some non-verbally, um, this cannot be how this is going to be in end here. So let's see how I can move this forward. One of the ways I see that happening is uh, getting a second opinion, right? The other way I can see that happening is, okay, we're just going to see if you can stand. They said you wouldn't be able to stand. Let's see if you can stand with assistance. Then let's see if you can stand for two seconds. Then let's see if you can stand for five. And then that is what builds hope and character, not just for that child, but it also leans into how mothers are always advocating and, and engaging in activism, sometimes simultaneously. Sometimes they're so closely interconnected because we don't just do it for our children, right? We do it for our families, we do it for our communities. We are always engaging in those activities. But when you do it sometimes outside of the role of mothering, it is captured and it's intentional because you plan for it. You don't always do that when you're a mother. It just, it's instinctive and it happens organically. And so in education, I think it lends itself to being intentional in both. You oftentimes, have a plan, right? And sometimes that plan works and sometimes it doesn't. But when it doesn't work, 
when that IEP, when that, you know, school meeting doesn't go according to plan, I think there's something that happens innately with women, with mothers in particular, parents, that you instinctively switch to activism. Okay, what do you mean by that? How can we work so that this isn't a barrier? How can we work so that this changes this outcome and we are not having this outcome? So it's almost instinctively that when there is a challenge, we want to understand it, but we understand it from a place of how do we remove these barriers? And if it's a systematic barrier, who is the person I need to have a conversation with so that I can see who I need to really have a conversation with so that this can't be or that we can get it changed, right? It's not all sometimes change is years in the making. Could you tell us more about these Black mother communities um, and especially in terms of how they both advocate and um, engage in collective activism so that they they can have more weight in pushing the elements that are going to uh, make that change possible? Because sometimes if, if one mother by herself tries to do this or that, it, it, it's probably going to be less impactful or it could be more impactful if it's planned in such a way so that it actually catalyzes through a particular story more activism. How, how do you um, describe a little bit more of these actual communities, uh, the, the cultural components, the symbolic things that make make them possible and you know if you could describe some more of of those communities yeah absolutely um so for me um what i have learned is there are two forms of engagement for collective and communal thinking as it relates to black mothers one is the individual who engages in a conversation and has a brave idea that they wish to share and it touches others in a way that they all kind of convene around this thought of change. It becomes so inviting and so fulfilling that it kind of grows into something that you didn't think would happen, but it emerges out. Um, and one example of that could be, um, so during COVID, a lot of Black mothers felt the pain here in Indianapolis of the technology not being in place for children to be at home, IEPs not being able to be fulfilled, the tools and the mechanisms through which learning is captured and kind of moved forward. All of those things that required face-to-face -face were gone. So mothers first at the school began to have conversations. We then started to exchange numbers and from phone numbers, what that turned into, I cannot be the only person who has this concern. From that one question generated a communal conversation. Communal conversation turned into a schooling community where we started um, our own teaching group of taking those IEPs. We knew what they were for. We knew how to implement them. We didn't use some of the terms that were used to implement them, but we were able to, in our own ways, break through some of those barriers and have 
good conversations about how can we do this as their mothers, but also tracks their learning. And so one of the ways we were able to move that dial was to understand that now we are all in a good position to have nothing but time. So how can we utilize this time? Um, so we started looking up lesson planning. We started looking up IEPs, how to implement them, watching YouTube videos, and started commenting on some of the YouTube videos, right? And then looking at some of the other comments, it all kind of, if you could think of this, um, this connective net, you throw it out there and then it connects with others, other branches. So that's kind of what it catalyzed into. But these conversations didn't feel safe enough to have them with the educators because of the terminology that they use. There was a lot of fear behind being wrong, right? This fear of not getting it right. When we knew we were getting it right, we just had to tell ourselves, we have something to add here. So we shouldn't find ways to dismiss our stories and dismiss our ways of entering into this conversation. So let's keep the conversation going. So it really just took one brave question and multiple brave women to start actually just opening up and being vulnerable. But that only happened within our own community when we were willing to push back against and say, okay, this isn't happening. What plan do you have? And when the schools had no plans, that was kind of when we came up with our own and started to push the idea that we saw in village schools and freedom schools, right? How do we, how do we now start to use some of these simple concepts and really just implement them at the individual level? So as mothers began to figure out what worked, we shared them. We had a Facebook group. We shared them. This is what worked. This is what worked. We took pictures. And because it was on social media, people began to um, add or tag other women who they knew were going through it. And so we became kind of our own collective community um, from within, but it stemmed from just having one brave conversation. Um, and I think for most um, mothers who are having second thoughts about what education looks like, sometimes it's just right up underneath us and it just starts with a conversation about how can we look at each other and see how can we come alongside each other, not to say that someone is wrong, but to be supportive. And so that's how these conversations really did really did uh, start. And, and it continues to grow into, you know, this mother movement of um, now that we have hybrid work schedules as opposed from COVID and a lot of parents are working from home, they've kept, they've kept it going. So it's still going. Um, and we have stronger relationships. Mothers convene without the children. We just get on Zoom and we just talk. And just sometimes just to be heard and valued differently um, in an authentic way that's empowering and that builds a sense of allegiance between moms that sometimes others don't know. We are able to connect on a language that crosses racial barriers. Um, that, that invites everyone to the conversation. Um, so that's 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 been one of the ways that we've been able to convene around ideas of um, not just advocacy and activism, but just within mothers and inviting everyone to just be vulnerable just for one second and see what doors that opens. But also 
also keeping in mind um, that not everyone is willing to share their stories that way. So offering other avenues, you know, to email, you know, we have, we have a group email that, you know, only one person views them and we keep the names anonymous. If they just want to ask a question and everyone respond to it, I will just copy all the responses and omit the names and you just get just the comments. So that's one way to kind of protect people who may not feel brave, but want to test the waters. So you have to keep the doors open um, for different ways of advocacy as well, listening and kind of tuning in, um, as we would say, to their frequencies of trust um, to enable them to kind of really fully engage in the conversation. Hi there. While we intend to make our podcast as accessible as possible, we ask those that have the financial means to support us by subscribing as a patron to our podcast for as little as $5 a month. To subscribe, go to our website, disabilityed.podbean.com. By subscribing as a patron, you will help ensure that we can continue to create and share new episodes while supporting other co-conspirators who face financial and health difficulties. For those with financial difficulties, please connect with us about obtaining a free copy of our books and or engaging in additional conversations with us. You can also support the show by hitting the follow button, share this podcast with among your network, and leave us a comment and positive rating. Your support means so much. That's really fascinating. Uh, and it, it illumines, uh, before we started the recording, Renita said um, that there were very interesting things that we had a legacy from from the COVID pandemics. And I, I now see how this could be one of those examples, the, the, the illustration of things that were learned during those times. And uh, they they probably become into a, a movement, a uh, way of, of collectivized concerns that were more isolated before, were more sort of struggles that were going in parallel but but as individuals and too limited in terms of the agency um, that was was taking place i, I do want to go back to um, something renita you talked about that i found to be very really interesting that this idea and and i think it connects to the work that you're doing, which is culturally informed advocacy as an approach to practicing human freedom. So um, one, I want you to share a little bit about that. And then to go back to what you said earlier, I, you talked about freedom schools. And so I imagine that some people who engage with this podcast may not be familiar with freedom schools in, in, in particular in the US context. So I just want to kind of, for you to share a little bit about both. So your work with culturally informed advocacy for practicing human freedom, and as well as, you know, what, what are freedom schools? Yeah, so I will first talk a little bit about freedom schools um, um, from, I'm going to say, from a 21st century context. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit more about the idea of practicing uh, human freedom through a culturally informed context. Um, so freedom schools is, is this idea um, that was born out of, um, I would say some of the more tumultuous times when uh, racial segregation 
um, in schools, when Blacks were not invited, um, Black people were not invited. Um, um, we were educated in segregated environments that were often um, underfunded, under-resourced, which mimics kind of now. Um, but how through those times, um, to go back to an earlier conversation, through that struggle came great things. Well, foundational to um, freedom schools were some concepts that I believe um, were born out of village, the village school mentality and way of approaching learning. And that is in the 21st century where those elements still exist. Um, that is um, how do we close the books on metrics and open up the conversation to engage in learning as an aspect of um, life fulfilling goals. And so one of the less complex ways to say that is how do we teach children to add value to um, not just the environment, but first to see the strengths in themselves. So one of the ways to do that in village schools, um, freedom schools, is have them author their own life. Um, and by that, what I mean is instead of your traditional arithmetic problem, what is five plus one, which is six, what a village school mentality would do, um, way of thinking, innovative thinking, has to do with reimagining the boundaries of mathematics, has to do with reimagining um, how we participate in reading and reading beyond the text. So one of the ways that that can happen in mathematics is instead of you learning five plus one is six, what if we go to a farm and I have you pick up four blue flowers and five red roses? We may not have the books, but we have the resources to get you to that point. So if you take that mentality, that nature of thinking and apply it to each subject, it has less to do with the resources, more to do with how do I move the dial on how this individual practices and engages with learning concepts in set subjects. So it, it takes the emphasis away from the structure that causes inequities to occur and has more to do with how to practice and engage with that individual in front of you and individuals in front of you with um, looking outside of the boundaries of tradition. Tradition, And so the 21st century, what that does is now they call those grassroots movements, right? Grassroots schools, um, where they have kind of gone back into some of those concepts because um, funding, right? So if we talk about charter versus public schools and environments, we look at having to reconceptualize and reimagine what learning looks like with limited resources. And so that is really what this movement is about. It has less to do with you learn less because of look at where you're learning than looking at what you're learning and how you're learning. So it has to do with innovation. Taking that concept and moving it to how I practice and use those concepts to engage in human freedom, if we take the element of disability away, not to say that it's not there, but to say, how do we truly engage with this individual? It opens the doors to possibility rather than limitations. And that is not to say that disability is empowering or disempowering. It's saying, how do I have a conversation? How do I facilitate? How do we, on an equal playing field, provide an environment 
that is going to build this individual to their to be them best selves. And so take the IEP away, take some of those tools and things away that have become markers for kind of understanding how intelligence and learning is captured to engaging with the individual. And it's not that those things aren't captured, it's it happens in the background. Um, and there are different ways to practice learning in a way that doesn't bracket and limit their freedom to just be. Um, here's an example. Um, one of my children, um, when you are in second or third grade, one of the first thing they do is they teach you regimented schedules, right? Well, if you are a child who a regimented schedule doesn't work for you, guess what's going to happen to you every single day at a certain time when you have to transition? So if we start to take some of those universal ways of thinking away and really engage with the human being that's in front of you, and in all aspects, what I am saying is treat everyone as if they have an IEP. We become more open to the ideas of reframing, of dealing with the individual and not the institutional practice. And, and so for me, what I offer is, um, I look at the work of Joyce King. Um, she tends to look at a lot of cultural elements um, that really buttress really well with the work of Hudson Weems. So an example would be through her six culturally informed principles. Um, she has these six uh, principles that mirror um, that mirror the elements for Africana womanist thinking and uh, methodology that allows a teacher and a pedagogy to say, under this principle, my work will do this. And then in the open box, it says it will achieve this by. So it kind of gives you the practical approach to it, the way to assess it, and then how is it being applied in your classroom? So it gives you that one-on-one -on -one sort of individual way to look at culture with the person that's in front of you rather than a large classroom where you're trying to teach the masses um, when it really needs to be the individual. I went to a boarding school for the blind as a child, and I'm thinking of, of what unfreedom does. Um, I mean, one of the things that total institutions do, um, Erwin Goffman is the first one who sort of defined the concept, is it regiments your schedule. It, it, you know, we had to take a shower at 6.30 and you had breakfast at 7.30 and whatever. I mean, it, it, it organizes your life in such a way and there's, it's not different to what happens in prisons. Uh, once you're outside those prisons, uh, the unfreedom spaces, the, the person has a lot of trauma, just recovering freedom. And I, I love what you're saying, what you're saying in terms of learning um, with a focus on, on the human freedom of the individual in terms of whatever uniqueness that individual has. Um, and again, connected to these uh, village schools, uh, these other more collective things you you have a communal element as well as as the individual aspects of, of learning co coexisting there um, i find that really fascinating i also thinking about like a experience that uh, a parent shared with me 
Uh, and I think it connects well with this idea of like compliance and unfreedom in that the child who is autistic didn't want to go outside during a regiment time where everybody, every kid has to be outside. Uh, and, and I think the parents said that it probably had to do with the noises that were outside. But then the school was like, well, our policies that during this time, everybody has to go outside. There's no way that there's no exception. I mean, in that, like, this, this, I, this whole idea of like not looking at the individual, looking at the policies as, 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 as the structure, as what is the most important thing here, rather than, well, caring <laughs> about this child and, and what they are looking for, what, or maybe in this case, not looking for. Uh, being outside with the, the noises. So I, I really like that. And I think that oftentimes what gets removed um, is that oftentimes teachers as human beings, sometimes as mothers themselves, parents themselves, um, the nature of being human is to deal with the person that's in front of you. Um, and one thing that I'm learning throughout this process is oftentimes they want to see change too. Um, and they recognize it doesn't work. Um, so at the systemic level, um, it becomes a, re, a, a sort of re-perpetuating of being wrong, right? So doing what is what is right, but morally and ethnically incorrect. Um, so it's straddling the fence uh, for teachers, educators who do care, because there are a lot of educators who do care, and there are a lot of educators who want to see change, but the problem is so big, you can't take it all. So I think for me, what I've learned, not just as a mother, but as a novice researcher, is to choose a lane that I feel I can be the most impactful in, and I'm passionate about. So... Teachers take that same approach. Educators take that same approach. What is the one thing I can change? Well, oftentimes for teachers, they're passionate about teaching others, but unfortunately they're part of a system that is just so large that they themselves, what they got into it to do and what they love to do, it is not that. Um, so it's a, it's a really fascinating, but yet complex versus complicated um, problem. And I will say this be, before we go, um, complicated, at least from my perspective, is something that's really messy, but if you follow it long enough, it follows a pattern. Complex is something that there is no rhythm. It happens, it's sporadic, it has no nature, no pattern, no, no matter how, how long you follow it, there's nothing that's going to follow one plus one is two. It's just going to happen and you, you're not going to know. So I believe that it's these systems are both complicated and complex and you just have to recognize it for what it is and just choose a line. You know, one thing that uh, I find to be very interesting about your research is that you have examined um, some of the positive outcomes of supporting Black autistic males in high school STEM education. And, and what I find very interesting about that is that first you're looking at a, at a very intersectional level and then you're also looking at the high school level which as we know there's very very little research about disability and stem 
in at the high school level and and so if you don't mind sharing a little bit more about some of the, yeah. some of the research yeah so what i see um in stem and in looking and working with black males is not so much as in the conversation of overrepresentation. i think that that is what it is my um, analysis has more to do with okay how can we help an individual who is autistic and functions best and learns best in a structured environment and so math has been one of the gateways through which learning um for um i'm going to say k through k through fourth grade has been most impactful because there's a lot of flexibility in their early learners and they have a lot of um they don't want to sit and do one thing really long um so it lends itself to being flexible um and how to approach young males early um but also develop a relationship and pattern with them that can kind of carry over into middle school. Um, and so what I've learned for middle school through high school is that working with um, black males who um, have another black male with them, there is a, there is more of a connection, a positive connection um, that wasn't there when a female was working with them in middle school. Um, so I'm not really, I'm not really sure how that translated into some of the data that is now, but there was definitely a change between, um, I'm going to say grade school to middle school, um, that transition of thinking and stability, um, I found it to be more nurturing and mothering. This was my overall summary was that mothers provided something early on in their development that a male figure didn't and during that transition as they aged more of a male intervention and sort of role model had more of a positive outcome not really sure why that is i didn't go more into um, that research but it was observable um, and it followed some of the other patterns in terms of black male teachers and the availability of black male teachers um, specifically working with other black males and particularly those who were autistic i tended to work with those who were lower functioning um, so i wasn't able to do a comparison to say that lower functioning versus higher functioning had a difference so for me um just saw a one-to-one -one correspondence definitely a difference um, and male versus female um, from transition to um, elementary to middle school as a difference. But nonetheless, um, it was just something I paid attention to and STEM seemed to provide that flexibility to be innovative and work with technology, which is stimulating. And I, I just don't think enough attention gets paid to science and the, the rigor that it offers and the structure that it offers as a way of intervening and working with um, individuals who have disabilities, particularly um, black males. Well, we've we've taken a lot of your time, but I, I, I still um, would like to conclude with a question that I, I 
I'm really interested in hearing um, your perspective about because th this emphasis on human freedom made me think of abolitionist teaching the whole movement, especially because the the emphasis uh, in abolitionist teaching doesn't pay enough attention, I think, to some of these culturally fonts of knowledge that you're alluding to and sort of these communal dimensions. Um, how do you see your work being connected uh, in, in terms of um, culturally uh, relevant memories of mothers as they work with these communal processes? Uh, how do you see that impacting abolitionist teaching uh, at the classroom level, uh, level, at the level of schooling transformations? That's a really good question. Um, abolitionist teaching, the way I see that working is, um, I have multiple individuals who I believe are important to the idea of abolitionist teaching. And I believe that mothers are some of the first teachers of that um, abolitionist teaching and it's informal, right? So there are informal and there are formal ways to transmit that. Um, I believe for me, the work of Joyce King um, and human freedom. So that is not an idea that um, I came, came up with on my own. That was a theme that came across in the practices of how do we work with individuals where they are, but yes, need to the intellectual stimulation. So it's how do you bridge those ideas? So one of the ways I see my scholarship and the research work that I'm doing is kind of building a bridge between how do mothers engage uniquely in their everyday environments, but yet transmit what happens at home and at school to apply to everywhere. That's a big pill to swallow and you can't do it alone. So one of the ways that I see myself engaging in that scholarship is going outside of institutions. So going literally to communities um, where mothers are working in community schools. Um, and sometimes those grassroots environments have been classic breeding grounds for doing great work. Um, what I'm going to call grunt work, which is the work that isn't necessarily in the textbooks, but it gets us to a closer place of practicing beyond the walls of education. Um, Bettina Love, I love her work, her scholarship. Um, she opens great doors um, of talking about music um, and using music to kind of teach students in an innovative way. And so if we take that idea of sort of breaking down the walls of tradition, I believe that's where we get to this idea of abolitionist teaching um, and getting to um, some of the more um, constructs that came with village schools and freedom schools and which mothers engage in those conversations every day. Um, it just has a name to it um, that we call, you know, abolitionist teaching. And I believe that we all engage with it. And, you know, mothers can be some of the forerunners to kind of get that conversation going again. And I believe that we have this new breed of generation that is 
doing that are continue to do things in an unconventional way that forces us to think about and reimagine what does it look like to learn? What is learning? How do we observe it? Um, and so it questions the very grounds on which we stood for so long. And so for me, that is what that is what I call, you know, abolitionist teaching. Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, we could probably spend the whole night just just <laughs> uh, dealing with all these very interesting issues um, that you you have uh, put on the table for us to to enjoy and taste and engage with in so many interesting and complex ways. Yeah, um, watch out, world. Renita Evans is almost done with her doctoral degree and will be making so much contributions and not notwithstanding the contribution. Good trouble, isn't that right? I'm ready to make some good trouble. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like this idea of what you mentioned, mothering as abolition. And I think that in my limited reading of abolition, uh, I haven't come across this idea. And so I think that's something um, that I know that will be uh, so, so awesome that you'll be. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> I am developing the concept as we live and breathe. This conversation will um, evolve out of many contributions. So I'm grateful. I am so grateful. We are also very much grateful. And I think uh, folks watching these podcasts will benefit from a lot of these ideas and um, it, it'll catalyze more good good trouble all over the world. So thank you for, for that um, steering of ideas. As we close out, uh, would you mind sharing a little bit about uh, where folks could find more if they want to learn more about what you're doing, what you've done? Yep. So uh, Renita Evans, mother scholar at gmail.com. Um, is how you can get in touch with me and some of the mother resources that are currently being developed. Um, and I, I hope that these conversations encourage, empower, um, and inspire um, women and families and men working with children who have unique abilities to just continue to stand it stand with and walk alongside of our our children because we they need us as much as we need them and we are shaped by um their everyday um challenges so just continue to stay in the fight so much for engaging with the DES podcast. We post new episodes every few weeks. The DES podcast is made possible and sustainable in solidarity with you and those who generously volunteer their time to converse with us. We hope you join us on our next episode.